So again, let yourself sit uh, at ease and listen. Um, Not so much to remember what's said, um, but rather um, to listen in a meditative way and see if there's anything that resonates with your own deepest experience. To listen to be reminded in that sense of what's true for yourself, what you already know. What I'd like to talk about tonight um, is, and it's a talk I found these notes I made 30 years ago, um, come back to this theme periodically, um, is a talk about the, the spiritual journey, the sacred journey, or um, in another language, it's also a talk about initiation. And um, one of the great preoccupations of human beings across cultures and across eras and times has been to find that which is sacred or transcendent or timeless, beyond that which takes us beyond the small sense of ourself to some connection with the greater whole or the holiness of the world. And in every great culture, in every tradition, this is the journey of the wise woman or wise man, of the yogi or the healer or the shaman. And although it takes many forms, the journey is always the same. It's a movement from the mundane, from the way of living where we're somewhat on automatic pilot. You know what I mean? Where our lives are not so conscious to touch that which is sacred or holy and then somehow to integrate it, to to allow that understanding to become embodied in our whole life. And in a certain way, you know, Joseph Campbell writes about it as the hero's journey, Um, but that's a pretty masculine way of looking at it. There are lots of other ways to understand it. Um, Holy, if we use that word, connects really to whole or not cut off or not separate from the fullness of the world and our life. So here we come and we do a bit of meditation at the beginning of Monday evenings and some of you have more long-standing and regular meditation practices. And in a certain way, the meditation itself is a kind of invitation to this sacred journey or to initiation. Now initiation means that you are willing to go through something difficult, basically. Um, Young men, young women too, sometimes tend to like it. You know, I'm working with young young people. I mean, they'll come up and they'll say, is there anything dangerous to do around here? You know? (laughs) Because you can hear in that. There's There's a whole deep understanding of that. How do you prove yourself? How do you show who you are unless you've done something difficult? Um, but also it comes because there's a sense of an incompleteness. 
um, in our lives or the difficulties that we face. There can be a kind of incomplete initiation. People go to war, which is a great initiation in the sense of affecting them, but often come back and it's not completed, it's not digested. And when you have an incomplete initiation, then you end up carrying the suffering of what you've gone through without the wisdom or the compassion coming from it. Does that make sense to you? And we all have, you know, know or either ourselves or others who've had incomplete initiations. This from Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner. He said, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So that really speaks about taking the difficulties of one's life, whether it's the spiritual path or... Well, there isn't really anything else, frankly. It's it's the spiritual path or nothing, basically. Because that's what your difficulties are. I mean, you know the old kind of trite saying... You're not a human being having spiritual experiences. You're a spiritual being having human experiences and using them to remember who we are. So sometimes it happens in an accidental way, but in meditation, one deliberately turns toward difficulty or turns toward the measure of suffering that we're given in life and says, all right, let me find something that's greater. Um, in this heart and mind through which I can understand and live wisely. There's a passage in the Majjhima Nikaya where the Buddha says, and so I reflected, perhaps I should face my fear. This is the Buddha before he was enlightened. Maybe I should seek out those dark groves, the deepest and wildest parts of the forest, or the charnel grounds and funeral grounds, on the new moon of the month where no light shines and go out there in the places most feared by humans and sit or stand in such a place and not move while all the wild sounds of the forests and the winds and the animals are heard around me and not move until I had faced my fear absolutely and fully and conquered it. So that was the Buddhist little trip into that, and he did. There are, in this journey, six stages, the sacred journey, if you will. And the first of these stages, at least in this map, we'll we'll make other maps on other nights, but in this one, the first of these uh, stages is a stage of renunciation, of turning away from ordinary life. Um, And it really is the looking at our lives or the world around us and seeing that there's got to be something more than what the culture presents to us. This from John Gatto, who was the New York City Teacher of the Year some years ago. He said, think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. So one looks in some fashion or other and says, okay, that's all right, but it's not for me. 
Joseph Campbell put it this way. He said, sometimes you climb the ladder only to discover it was against the wrong wall. Right? <laughs> but it's not just the kind of consumerism, desire side that doesn't quite do it for the soul, for the spirit, but it can be the other side. It can be the continuing warfare. When are we going to learn some other way to solve our human problems beside killing one another? It can be the continuing insanity of racism. When are we going to learn to see human beings as they are and not through all these projections and fears and filters and, and uh, the suffering they cause? It can be, well, Langston Hughes' poem where he says, let America be America again, the America she never was. It can be what I would call the great cultural sadness of knowing that there's an inspiration that's possible for us as human beings and that we want to live and not seeing it lived out in some fashion or other. Or maybe it's just all species of rhinoceros 12 species of antelope, 15 of turtles, all the great apes, the golden lemur, the river dolphins of the Indus and Yangtze, the woolly spider monkey, the Malay binderong, the Malabar civet, 17 species of birds, and 20 of mammals just in the state of California. This is the endangered species list. Saying, okay, um, there has to be something more meaningful and deeper as a way to live in this world. Or maybe it's, the Greek word for it is katabas. It's the blow that comes at some point where you're living along in your life and someone close to you dies or you get a diagnosis or something that you've built up and seems so beautiful and meaningful, breaks apart or collapses. One day when the sultan was in his palace in Damascus, a beautiful youth who was his favorite boy rushed into his presence, crying out in great agitation, he must fly at once to Baghdad. People aren't going there anymore, but in this story they do. (laughs) And imploring leave to borrow his majesty's swiftest horse. The sultan asked why he was in such haste to go to Baghdad. Because, the youth answered, as I passed through the gardens of the palace just now, death was standing there, and when he saw me, he stretched out his arms as if to threaten me, and I must lose no time in escaping from him. The young man was given leave to take the sultan's horse and fly, and when he was gone, the sultan went down indignantly into the garden and found death still there. How dare you make threatening gestures at my favorite, he cried. But death answered quite astonished and said, I assure your majesty, I did not threaten him. I only threw up my arms in surprise at seeing him here because I have a tryst with him tonight in Baghdad. And so there's something mysterious about death, the death in Baghdad that we know, and this is a kind of a poignant story, if you will, because of so much death there. But it's also about the unexpectedness. It says karma can change as fast as the swish of a horse's tail. And we don't know it. So something in us begins to turn. We see the ordinary life around us. And something deep in the heart or the spirit begins to sense that there's some other way of living 
there's some other way of being than the kind of cultural, uh, the cultural norm, if you will. And the beginning of the journey isn't actually to do anything. It's to stop and not do anything at all for a moment and really listen deeply. It's like Bill Moyers when he was the press secretary for Lyndon Johnson just after Kennedy's assassination. And they were having a luncheon at the White House and Moyers also was a minister, if you you know that or not. Um, And President Johnson turned to Bill Moyers at the end of the table and said, would you say a prayer before our meal? And Johnson began, um, Bill Moyers began to say a prayer and Johnson, as he was, kind of shouted from the other end of the table, speak up, Bill, I can't hear a damn word, you know, <laughs> to which Moyers replied, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. <laughs> there is something that we need to do if we're to undertake a deep spiritual journey that's not about going anywhere or having something, or making something, or doing something, but just stop and listen to the mystery of being alive in this human body, with these wiggly things at the ends, you know, and the way we walk by falling one direction and catching ourselves, and then falling the other direction and catching ourselves. I mean, bipeds are really strange creatures. It's really bizarre. Or, as I like to say, the hole in one end in which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly, you know, and glug them through the tubes as a way to get it kind of moving around. Is that who you are? You know, are you the food body? Who are you? Okay, so you stop. And you say, there's got to be something more to this game, you know, than, I don't know, my new Apple iPhone or something. I mean, the Apple iPhones are great, but, you know, something more. And the second step of the journey is a question. It's founded on a sacred question. Sometimes it's the question of who am I? We had this Zen master come to our center in Massachusetts during the three-month retreat one year. We bring in people at the end of our two-month retreat at Spirit Rock or the three months in Massachusetts in the last week. And this wonderful, great old Korean Zen master came in, Kusan, Nine Mountains, with his staff and... And all these people had been sitting and walking and meditating for three months and talked to him about, we talked to him about their practice and so forth. And he got up and he looked at them and he said, oh, mindfulness, no good. <laughs> you know? And everybody's heart sank. Three year, or three months of just being mindful. And then he, then he took his staff and he banged it onto, the, onto the, the place where he was sitting and he said, only this. What is this? What is this life? What is this? Only one question. What is this? Everyone thought he was a little mad, which he was. (laughs) But it was the question. What is this? I mean, who are we? How did we get into this life? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who I spent a bit of time with in the days that she was teaching, remarkable figure, kind of the... um, inspiration for the hospice movement in America in many ways. She said her work to bring death and dying into consciousness before it had been sort of in the back room of the hospital started when she was a very young doctor. She wasn't even finished her medical training in Europe. She was Swiss, a triplet, she says. And, and um, 
she said she was called to work in a medical team in Germany and on the border of Poland at the end of the Second World War. She said, and when I was there, I walked into a concentration camp and it was still warm. And there were piles of children's shoes and hair from children's and little poems that were scribbled on the walls. She said, and I held up a pair of children's shoes. She said, and that is my question. Who are we that we can do this to one another and that we can also love one another so deeply? She said, I had to find out. And that's why she said, I wasn't afraid to turn toward death. Those shoes in my hand taught me that I could turn and face death itself. And you can reflect as I talk. This is other people's stories. But what is your sacred question? It might be, how can I love well? Or what does it mean to be free in this world? Or what is this great mystery that we share? The world is full of divinity and strangeness. And the scientist stops where all humans do, at the doors of birth and death. She knows no more than you or I why a seed remembers the oak of 20 million years ago and why dust acquires the form of a woman and why we behold a rainbow in space and time. Just to be alive, so mysterious. What is this? Who am I? A turning away from the ordinary, a deep listening, a sacred question. Then... This journey requires some kind of vehicle or container or practice or discipline. Sometimes it happens by accident. Sometimes in childbirth or a near-death experience or some accident that you have or maybe traveling and walking in the Andes and, you know, 18,000 feet and all of a sudden a vision of life that you hadn't known opens. But more often one undertakes a practice, a training, a discipline to open the small sense of self, the body of fear, it's called this limited identity, and begin to sense something else that's possible. And it can be as simple as just beginning to sit in meditation and see the insanity of your own thought stream and go, wow, look at that. My God, it's doing reruns, you know. (laughs) 97% of what it does is reruns. I hope you've noticed. And it's it's like one of those kind of cheap cable channels late at night (laughs) that kind of has all the bad advertisements along with the reruns, and it goes over and over those bad soap operas. You remember them, you know. And so you take some discipline. Do you take the seat? My teacher called it taking the one seat in the center of the world, Ajahn Chah said, and not getting up and, and letting the joys and sorrows and praise and blame and fear and love and all the stuff of life show itself and you sit with your eyes open and your heart open and say, I will sit like the Buddha on this seat and find the space of freedom or love or understanding in the midst of it all. That's not easy, you know. You do walking meditation back and forth. You sit and you walk on retreats for a lot of hours. The kids, when we go and teach retreats at other places, call it the night of the living dead, right? (laughs) People are walking very slowly. 
But there's something to it. A local poet friend, Barbara Ruth, writes, I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. That includes time resting with lizards, sunning on the rock, writing down a dream, remembered staring at Mount Barnaby, listening to woodpecker in the tree that harbors Osprey's nest. It's undertaking that which allows us to see in a new way. And to do so is not easy. I mean, it can be a meditation practice. It can be parenting. There you are, you have this one kid or two, I don't know how many crazy, you might have three or four of them if you're really into it, you know. And, um, you know, it's actually harder than, than the monastery. Yes, you go to Japan and you sit or Burma in these long retreats and don't move myself. But if you really don't want to get up in Burma, you kind of roll over and they ask, you know, you say, oh, I was a little sick or something. Your kid wakes up in the middle of the night. It's much tougher than any Zen master because you simply have to get up and be there. You have to do it. And you do it over and over and over again. The surrender and the care and the giving and the generosity and the patience and the compassion and the impatience and the lack of generosity and all that stuff you see, and then you do it anyway. Gandhi called it Blessed monotony. It's the willingness to do something that makes the heart grow bigger and deeper and that breaks the shell of fear of our life into something beautiful and larger. Manual labor is what Chogyam Trumpa called meditation. Right? It's the manual labor of the heart. And it takes a certain kind of bravery in the outer way, whether it's the yogis sitting, you know, in the harsh sunlight by the Ganges in India and braving the storms, but really it's the inner bravery of sitting and facing your loneliness and fear and loss and all of those kinds of things that come as you sit and really open yourself. Mahatma Gandhi said, I have three enemies. My favorite, the most easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. You know, he He could get some there with that. But a, 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 a much more difficult opponent is the Indian people. He said, that's much more. And if you've ever traveled in India, you would understand what he was talking about. But my most formidable opponent, said Gandhi, is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi himself. With him, I seem to have very little influence. Right? <laughs> so you sit, or you take your spiritual practice, whatever it is, and you discover the capacity to be present for the joys and sorrows and boredom and loneliness. And if you're bored or lonely, great. Be bored. Be lonely. Let yourself sit in the presence. Your grief comes, the tears you haven't shed. Because otherwise, you know, as soon as you're bored at home, what do you do? You open the refrigerator, you know, or call somebody or distract yourself. But here, if you're actually using the practice not to just kind of go through the form, but to deepen the heart, the presence of freedom, then when difficulty, grief, tears, longing, whatever it is comes, you bow and you say, yes, this too, I will sit in the midst of it all. And as you do, you begin to discover a new and greater capacity for presence. Carl Fried Graf von Durkheim, a very wonderful teacher and 
of Zen practice in Europe wrote, the person who is really on the way, who falls upon hard times, will not as a consequence turn toward the friends who offer them refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. And so we have, and each of us has our measure of difficulties in our life. And the, the, the path or the practice is actually to turn toward them and say, this is an initiation. This is something to learn from, to bear this sorrow well with an understanding heart. Recently, I got a call from a friend, Michael Harner, who runs a big shamanic network around the world. And he said, I have an Eskimo shaman here visiting me named Henry from north of the Arctic Circle. And he wants to meet a Tibetan Lama. Can you help us out? So I called around, you know, being in the business and everything. And... Um, <laughs> found there are different llamas, old and new, and you know, one llama, I, I called this friend, and they said, oh, don't call that llama, he's too cranky, he wouldn't be a good, you know, <laughs> that one's too old, he's sort of retired, but okay, here's a nice young llama, so I got this shaman, this shaman and the llama together, and it was really beautiful, because the shaman was doing these healings north of the Arctic Circle, and then as he was doing his healings, the Dalai Lama appeared, and he needed to talk to some Tibetan llama and find out what that meant for his healings, and it was a beautiful meeting. And I asked the Eskimo shaman, I said, so my studies of initiation tell me that in, in the Eskimo Inuit tradition, you would be taken to a little snow hut for a whole month of solitude and given just a little pack of food, dry food, and one bottle of water, and that's it for a month. And you sit in there in your little igloo, and do people still do that? And he shook his head. He said, my grandfather told me about that. And then the, the, the Tibetan Lama said, yes, in Tibet we have that. People will go in the high mountains in the caves like that. And they talked about the old initiation and how, many, how not many people are doing it anymore. And it was just beautiful to watch them. But it doesn't have to happen there, you know. The noise and lack of privacy are the greatest obstacle to doing formal meditation practice in prison. From 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., the prison's overcrowded living areas are in an almost constant uproar. To practice during these hours, I used to clean out one of the sanitation closets where the mops, brooms, and trash barrels are kept. I would set everything aside so that I wouldn't be disturbed, take a chair, and then sit for an hour or two. People thought I was a little strange sitting in the trash closet, but they got used to me being there. I started sitting in a two-man cell in a hellish, overcrowded county jail where I awaited trial and sentencing, and I've been sitting daily ever since. When I finally acquired a single room, I was able to begin the nundro practice given by my Tibetan teacher. I would arise 3.30 in the morning. Now the guards come by to count heads at 5 a.m., and they see me doing full prostrations on the floor beside my bed. Now, what's true about these is that it's not by force that you do it. Okay, I'm going to make an initiation. 
Life will initiate you. It will, in all its ways. It will make you face praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. It's what it's woven of. But to take it as an initiation means to not avert your gaze, to not close your heart to the sorrows of the world, but to say, yes, this has been given to me and I will take this, the, the war that's been given, the, the death, the, the injustice that's the measure that I've been given, and make something that is beautiful, that has some understanding or dignity out of it. As the Sufis say, Overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain or the sorrows of the world in her heart, you are each endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. So there is first some sense of renunciation of the common way of living, looking for something deeper, a sacred question, a discipline or a practice or a way that we work with the suffering that's given to us. And then the next stage is called hardship. Go ahead. Light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells and call out to the gods, But watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. This is an Indian saint saying, okay, you want initiation. Be careful what you ask for. But the truth is you're going to get it anyway, so use it in some fashion that is ennobling to your heart. And you can reflect on your life and what you've been given and how it might ennoble you. And of course in meditation we sit and all the various forms of Mara appear. Mara is in the Hindu mythology or the Buddhist mythology, the Indian mythology, is the name for the god who represents all the forms of difficulty, temptation, aggression, distraction, evil, whatever you want to call it. So on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, as the myth or story goes, seated under the Bodhi tree, vowing to awaken, as the Buddha did, Mara appeared in all these forms as temptation. You know temptation. You sit here, oh, if only I had that. Now if I had a little more of that, then you know how Mara tempts you. And then Mara comes as aggression and fear, all these different ways. You know, and Mara comes as doubt. You don't know what you're doing. You can't awaken. You can't. You. You can't really learn to be free. That's only for Tibetan lamas. It is. It's only for those people in India, those great spiritual adepts. It's not yours. You're too. I don't know. Old, young, or you know, American, or whatever your idea is, and it's not available to you. Nonsense. Liberation is your birthright, and it is as possible for you as any being that's ever been born. And Mara will come, I promise you, the minute you close your eyes, you can be in Sausalito, and Mara will zip from Bodhgaya, India, to Sausalito in a nanosecond. There you sit, and tempt you, 
and bring you fear and doubt and confusion. Here is Mara, and you bow and you say, oh, this is Mara. You come. This is the hardship. And it's there in meditation, but it's there in all the things in your life, the things that are difficult in your extended family. Need we say more? (laughs) Right? The things that are difficult in the body politic and the injustice of the world. And when I say that, you know, meditation and this form of practice of turning suffering into an initiation, um, it sounds like it's inward, but that's really this, the step to give you the capacity to then do what you need to offer to right the injustice or work with your family or change things. But first, you have to change your own heart. Story I got recently from the Sun magazine. When my wife Beth and I moved um, out from the country to a warehouse loft in the center of a large city, Beth surprised me by embracing every aspect of urban life, even the sirens, the parking problems, the car alarms at night. The homeless people made me nervous, but Beth learned their names. The only neighbors who bothered her were the guys who ran the tattoo parlor across the street. They got into traffic-stopping fights, harassed women on the sidewalk, and intimidated men. They were the reason Beth didn't walk on that side of the street. For two years, she glared out our window at the row of men sitting in front of the shop and fantasized about shooting out their tires. (laughs) Then one day, she called me at work to tell me she was getting a tattoo. (laughs) She'd never wanted a tattoo before and had even taken pride in being one of the few people in our group of friends with no body art. Though surprised, I I nodded and said, hmm, interesting. Later she called back and announced I did it. When I got home, Beth excitedly showed me the delicately inscribed words, Love thy neighbor on her wrist. (laughs) She explained how she'd marched across the street and gone into the tattoo parlor. The walls were covered with drawings of skulls, bloody knives, naked women, the Virgin of Guadalupe. Manuel, the proprietor, was working on somebody's backside. Beth introduced herself as his neighbor and asked if she could watch. He said, sure. After a while, she went outside and sat in front to study the world from their perspective. The guy next to her asked what she was getting done. Love thy neighbor, she muttered. (laughs) Why, he asked. Well, you guys are my neighbors, and I'm kind of having trouble loving you. (laughs) You kind of scare me, you know, with all the fights that break out over here and all. He ushered her back into the shop and announced with complete sincerity, Hey, Manuel, dude, we're scaring our neighbors. we got to stop fighting. (laughs) Manuel was defensive at first until Beth explained she didn't want to change him. She just wanted to get a tattoo. (laughs) So Manuel showed her a picture in a magazine of Love Thy Neighbor tattooed on a man's inner forearm with bloody knives in the background. (laughs) Not quite what I wanted, said Beth. After they'd settled on a design... Manuel began to do his art on her wrist. Then he stopped. How do you spell thy? He asked shyly. I didn't go to school. The other tattoo artist piped in, Dude, it's not because you didn't go to school. It's because you never read the Bible. (laughs) From then on, Beth would wave to the tattoo artists as if they were old pals. The music from across the street was not so grating to her nerves. No more fights broke out. The sidewalk felt safe. Four months later, Beth took our car in for an oil change and saw Manuel talking to the repairman behind the counter. 
As she began to remind him who she was, he stepped forward and gave her a warm hug. Hey, he said to his friend behind the counter, this is my neighbor, the one I was telling you about. So there's so many forms of initiation and practice where you turn toward that which is difficult, that's given to you, and you say, yes, I will look this directly in the eye. As the Buddha, I will open my eyes, I will open my heart. I will make this the place of transformation. And as you do this, you discover that you can, whether it's in meditation or whatever form, that you can be like the eye of the storm. In bullfighting, there's a place in the ring where the bull feels safe. If he can reach this place, he stops running and gathers his full strength. He's no longer afraid. And it's the job of the matador to make sure the bull does not have time to occupy this place of wholeness. This safe place for a bull is called the kerencia. For humans, the kerencia is the safe place in the heart, in the inner world. When a person finds their kerencia in full view of the matador, they are calm and peaceful and wise. They have gathered their strength around them. And this is really the training. And it's a training of a shift of identity from the body of fear, from the fear of death, which we all have, but somehow turning toward it, saying, yes, this is true, and here we are. Turning from the fear of loss or pain, or some people are afraid of pleasure, whatever it happens to be, saying, yes, this is our humanity, and I am here for the full human experience. And there comes, as we turn toward difficulty, a profound healing and a discovery of a shamanic equilibrium, a capacity to be present for the whole catastrophe of life, as Zorba puts it. The healing comes when we discover the capacity to not put anything out of our heart, whatever it is, to find a new way to be present for it all. A kind of alchemical transformation where Mara turns from lead into gold. Thomas Merton said, true prayer and love are found only in the moment when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. That is, when things get really difficult, that's the place where you really you, you learn about prayer, or that's the place where you learn this transformation. And the transformation is done by giving yourself to the process to say, all right, I will enter this and I will allow this to be my initiation. And then amazing things start to show themselves to you. There's a story of the Indian saint Ramakrishna who was along the Ganges River um, uh, out north of Calcutta and he prayed to, the, um, to Kali, to the great mother goddess, um, the goddess of destruction as well, but Kali is the goddess of the destruction of the, of the illusions of life so that you can see that which is beyond illusion, to see the timeless. And he was an ecstatic and a mystic and he would pray for a vision of Kali and one day he was sitting by the river 
And all of a sudden, the mother goddess, in whatever form she was, Kali, Durga, all these many forms in India, she appeared out of the river. And she had long, dark hair and these huge, dark eyes that were like looking into outer space and this wonderful smile on her face and these great breasts. And she spread apart her legs and out of her body, she was giving birth to the creatures of the world. And she looked him right in the eye, you know, and there he was, his prayers and his meditations now, face to face with the great goddess who gives birth to the whole world. And then she reached down and picked up a couple of babies and put them in her mouth and began to chew on them. And the blood ran down her chin and across her breasts. And she looked him in the eye again and then slowly sank beneath the waters of the Ganges River took uh, Ramakrishna a few minutes there to uh, digest that. Um, but it was a transformative vision in his life. It was really a turning point because he saw that birth and death couldn't be taken apart. And she who gives birth and gives life to the world also takes back life. And that we are part of this cycle. In fact, we are this cycle. We're not separate from this. And he surrendered to what life is and what freedom is much bigger than the small sense of Ramakrishna after that vision. You don't own anything. It's just, you know, you get to be the accountant and you keep it for a little while. It's like that story of the very wealthy fellow who died, you know. And somebody said, well, how much did he leave? And the answer, the other person said, well, why everything, of course. I mean, how much do you leave? You know, you don't own stuff. You have it for a time. You're the accountant. So the image that's painted in the beautiful um, Buddhist art of the night of the Buddha seated under the tree of enlightenment, surrounded by the armies of Mara, shows the Buddha seated there. And first the temptations of Mara and then the aggression all these spears and flaming arrows and swords and so forth hurled toward the Buddha. And the image that's painted is at that moment the Buddha raises his hand and touches each of the arrows and spears with a great heart of compassion. A little picture of his heart and a little line that goes from his heart, you know, like those little, those little bear fetishes from, from New Mexico or something, the little line that goes from his heart to his fingertips. And as he touches every arrow and every spear, it turns into flower petals and drops at his feet. And this is the last lesson, as Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, this is the last lesson, the transforming power of our own love and attention. It's always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude, when a person faces their death and aloneness and fear only then does it make sense. And if we learn to turn toward the difficulties that are given to us with an open heart and a spacious mind and say, yes, this too, to bow to these as well, then there comes a great transformation, a great awakening. And it can happen a moment, a surrender, an opening, a dying a little bit, if you will. And what dies is the small sense of ourself. 
And what's born is that which is timeless and fearless and open and spacious. We begin to trust the awareness of life itself that we are, that we can go through all this, including death when it comes, all of it. As Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer from the agony of it. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha, Buddha being born and Buddha dying. All of this is part of our human life. And we know this so deeply in ourselves. When we remember and trust, we can take a breath, we can open, we can meet this world as the Buddha did with a great heart of compassion for all the sorrows and all the beauty of it as it is. And there comes a finding of peace that is not the peace of the world around you because the world will continue to be praise and blame and gain and loss. It is an unshakable peace of heart because you rest here and now with things, this life as it unfolds. And you're no longer a seeker, but you're one who's found or come to rest. And you know this, you all have had these moments. On the night of his enlightenment, the first words of the Buddha, or the morning of his enlightenment after the morning star, he said, O house builder, thou art seen at last, house builder who has built the house of sorrow. No longer shall you build this house of sorrow. The ridge pole is broken, the rafters are shattered. Freed am I, delivered is this heart. So he saw the small, fearful sense of self, the builder of the sense of self. And he said, this is all broken open. No more will you build the house of fear and sorrow. Resting in the timeless now, awake, free, liberated. I mean, even as you listen to me, remember, reflect on the time in your life when you felt the most free. You know, because you know this. Circumstance changed, somebody did something terrible or wonderful, someone was born, someone died, all the stuff that happens. And in you was a knowing that you are free and that this consciousness that is who we are, out of which everything appears and disappears, is our true home, our abode, our resting place. And when you meditate, it's not to have some particular experience, but it's to come more and more to take the seat in the center of the world, here and now, and trust the timeless consciousness that is who you really are, the witness of all things. And it's beautiful. That's a really beautiful thing, to shift from being a frightened person. And it doesn't mean fear doesn't still arise. That's the interesting thing. When you know this, which you do, fear will still come. I mean, I remember I was with my teacher, Ajahn Chah, one day, and we'd gotten an invitation to, he was going to do some teachings at this little temple on the border of Cambodia that was some distance away. And so we got a ride in this pickup truck to take us some hours to the Cambodian border. And the young man who was driving us was a pretty crazy driver, as young men like to do, you know. So there we were, going on these dirt roads through the mountains, in the southern part of this province, on the way to this Cambodian border temple. 
and there was not much traffic on the road. But we'd go around these corners, you couldn't see what was coming, and once in a while there'd be a bus, or there'd be a logging truck, or there'd be a water buffalo or something. And he was going really fast, you know, and I'm holding on like this, my knuckles are white, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to die a monk, right? All right, this is how it is. Start to breathe, do the death practices, relax, rest in space, all that stuff, right? Then I look over at my teacher, and I notice that his knuckles are white, too. It's sort of somehow comforting in a certain way, right? (laughs) Going really racing around these things. We asked him to slow down. He wouldn't, you know, didn't listen. Finally, we made it into the courtyard of this little monastery. (sighs) Safe, arrived. And my teacher turned to me, and he smiled, and he said, Scary ride, wasn't it, for this kind of amusement? And it's not that he didn't say, you know, he didn't say, oh, that didn't touch me. He was afraid. But it was just fear. It was like, oh, that's only fear. That was a scary ride. People go to Disneyland and they they pay money for this kind of thing. (laughs) This was a scary ride. This is part. Life is a scary ride, right? That's how it is. You get part of that. But something in us knows just the same part that goes to the amusement park that says, wow, this is an amazing ride. And you'll be saying it, you know, when you get to death and you say, wow, that was an amazing incarnation, wasn't it? I mean, look at that. You don't think so. You'll see. You wait. Remember, I told you so. Uh, Again, from Thomas Merton, because he's so poetic about this. He says, um, when in his last year of his life, he took a journey across Asia to visit various Buddhist temples and meet with the Dalai Lama and so forth. And he visited the ancient temple of Polonnaruwa, which is one of the oldest and most beautiful temples in Sri Lanka. And there, in a huge cliff of marble, are carved several enormous statues of the Buddha, huge, which Thomas Merton called, said were almost alive, the most wonderful work of art he'd ever seen. And looking at these Buddhists, peaceful and empty, he said, I saw the silence of these extraordinary faces, the great smiles, huge and subtle, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. The great smiles of peace, not of emotional resignation, but a peace that has seen every question without trying to discredit anyone or anything, without refutation. For these eyes, the Buddha saw the whole world arise out of emptiness and everything connected in it held in compassion. And this is, of course, a work of art, but it's a work of art made by the human heart and the human spirit to remind us of who we really are. And so when we begin to trust the space of awareness itself or meditation, our practices, our our heart of compassion, we shift from being the seeker to the one who knows. Be the one who knows. Be the knowing itself. And then there comes a return. You come down from the mountains or back from the ocean or the retreat or wherever it was that was your place of initiation. And there's a sense of beauty Wherever you are, no matter where you go, that's the place for you. Exactly where you are. 
And it said in Zen, in the beginning, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. And in the middle, mountains are no longer mountains, river no longer rivers. Everything is turned upside down. Who am I? What is this world? And then in the end, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. You know, and it's time to go home and, you know, put away the groceries, take out the trash and cook dinner for your loved ones because this is what we're given. But when we have touched fear and sorrow and aloneness and death, our fear of death, when we've touched equally joy and the beauty of life and love, we become a seer, a sage, a wise woman, a healer, because we've journeyed through the realms of the earth and come back some way from this journey of all the realms Um, and love life because we're only given these days and this amazing experience once in this way. No one has ever been like you before. And there's no, on all these billions of human beings and you're unique and no day and no moment has ever been like this moment and this day. And we're given this. We are it. We are it experiencing itself. And you surrender and open and touch everything that arises with this beautiful spirit of compassion. It says in the Zen ox herding pictures at the end of this whole great journey, the the old Zen master is kind of walking back into town. I go to the marketplace with my wine bottle and return home with my staff. I visit the wine shop and the market and all whom I look upon become enlightened. There's this great kind of happy grin on the face of the Zen master. And it's really the story of bringing our gift, bringing our understanding, bringing our love, our fearlessness. When you sit with those who are in pain and you say, it's okay, you know, this is part of life, we can do this. You sit with those who are being born and beauty and new things coming. This too is a part of our life. One of the things about initiation that's really important to understand is that that you don't finish it. When you get through an initiation, even a great initiation, you know what's next? Another initiation. Because in that sense, life continues to initiate us into its mystery and into the possibility of presence and into that timeless awareness that is our home the presence and the witnessing of it all that we can rest in. As you reflect on this topic and stories and so forth, you can feel what is incomplete in your own initiations, the sufferings and the things that have been given to you that ask you to turn toward them and complete them in some way. And you can also reflect on the wisdom and greatness of heart that you have learned and that you already carry. The Tao puts it this way, the last words for tonight. I have just three things to teach 
simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and thoughts, you return to the source of your being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile with all beings in the world. To come back to yourself is to come back to the way, to the Tao, the Dharma, to live from this knowledge and this understanding. And it's a beautiful invitation, and it's really the art of being a human being. So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, allow yourself to shift from the one who is seeking to the one who knows. Be the one who knows. Rest in the knowing itself, the knowing of this moment and these words, the knowing that it's warm in a summer evening surrounded by others, the knowing of the joys and the sorrows of life. Be the one who knows. Be the knowing. Trust it, rest in it. Rest in the great heart that holds it all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.